The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the hosts and creators of this program. This is the Pet Buzz. This is the Pet Buzz. Freshly collected with news, celebrity pet gossip, and the latest pet trends. The Pet Buzz gives you the latest 411 on everything pet related. Everything pet related. Hosted by pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. And here's the Dynamic Pet Duo. You are listening to the Pet Buzz, the ultimate in pet talk radio. Now let's kick off the show with the weekly countdown. In segment four, we are talking with April Steele, the president of Dumb Friends League, about the possibilities of lifting the ban on pit bulls in Denver, Colorado. In seg three, UCLA professor Daniel Bloomstein, an ethologist and conservation biologist, is joining us to talk about groundhogs. Two, this is where we get to dish out about our favorite celebrities and their pets and hear the weekly flex facts. Okay, and one, and Dr. Tracy Goldstein from UC Davis, she is joining us to talk about how the coronavirus affects people and pets. Dr. Goldstein, welcome to the Pet Buzz today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us about this awful coronavirus and what is it and how many strains are there? Yeah, well, first of all, coronaviruses are a group of um, viruses, and they commonly cause um, the common cold, um, and they've been around for a long, long time. Um, this current strain is a new strain, as far as we can tell, and seems to be a little bit more severe than than some of the other ones that we know about. So prior to SARS and MERS, most of the coronaviruses that we knew about really didn't seem to be that severe um, in terms of causing major disease. But SARS, MERS, and now this new one is the third sort of really severe coronavirus that causes bad infections in people. So I'm just curious, you know, watching the news and everything, where does this virus come from and how do humans get them? And something that everybody's trying to understand right now, I think we have to remember in this outbreak, it's still early days and information is, you know, coming out all the time. But based on the, you know, when we look at the sequences and when we look at what this virus seems to be related to, it seems to be related to other viruses from bats. And so that makes us wonder if potentially a long time ago this virus could have been, you know, originating in bats and then maybe went through some sort of change or mutation that allowed it to then um, infect people. And then since that time, it's mutated or changed even more to where now it's actually very good at infecting people and is moving from person to person. So I'm going to follow up with this one, Doc. Is this a zoonotic disease? Yeah, we think so. We think that that initial um, virus came from an animal. There was an initial spillover event at some point earlier. Um, you know, at this moment, the data suggesting maybe that occurred in November. It's hard to know right now. We don't have enough information. But originally, it probably came from an animal and changed. And now it's become a human virus. And now it's no longer zoonotic. It's just human to human. But initially, it probably was from an animal. We just don't know. Um, which one that was. And that's quite common. We know that SARS originally came from bats. Um, it looked like it got into civet cats and then from civet cats into people. MERS, similarly, we think it came from bats. It changed and was able to infect camels and then from camels able to infect people. So presumably over time, as we understand more about this virus, there'll be 
you know, some similar type story that will explain how it emerged. Now, I'm actually glad that you uh, brought up SARS, because is it true that the Wuhan coronavirus strain is similar to SARS? Um, it's, in, it's related, as in it's in that group. Okay. It's definitely very different. It's not, it's not a SARS-like virus. But it's in that group, that, and, and that group has other viruses kind of like SARS. Not all of them are pathogens. You know, one of the things that I was curious about, um, a lot of people were talking about early on that uh, a lot of the Asians who were infected, you know, were eating perhaps dogs and cats from the markets and getting infected. And, uh, and that's originally how a lot of people started getting it. But the one thing that I was fearing is that uh, what happened that we won't have a repeat of what happened in 2003 where a lot of Asians were Asians were abandoning and throwing their pets out the window for fear of um of catching the virus. Yeah, there's no link um to this virus and dogs and cats that we've seen so far. In those markets, you know, there's a huge amount of mixed species, all kinds of wildlife species and mm-hmm. and again, you know, early days, but right now the data is there doesn't show any link to dogs and cats. Dogs and cats have their own coronaviruses, as you probably know, um, and, and also causes the common cold or other GI um, disease in them. And, you know, we don't get it from them and we haven't given them our coronaviruses that we commonly get. So right now there's no evidence of links to dogs and our pet dogs and cats. Yeah, visually, you know, in the United States, we're not familiar with animal food markets like they have in Asia. And that's where a lot of these things have originated, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think these markets, you know, one of the issues there is, that, you know, there's um, a lot of live animals and dead animals, a lot of species that are being mixed, um, animals, you know, wild animals, domestic animals, all, you know, piled into close quarters. And that, that type of environment is just ripe for, for, you know, viruses to spread. Similarly, you know, when you think about influenza and you think about how they might move between poultry and pigs, that happens in these areas where animals are really closely kept together for farming, and then, you know, when animals are sick or stressed, that allows them to share viruses, and you have a similar situation happening in markets. Well, you know, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Dr. Tracy Goldstein about the coronavirus. How is the coronavirus different from the coronavirus that affects dogs and cats? Um, well, there's many, many different types of coronaviruses, um, and most of them are actually not severe pathogens. So the ones that affect dogs and cats cause the common cold. Um, in, in dogs in particular, you might be familiar with something called feline infectious peritonitis in cats. We, and many of our cats get vaccinated for that. It's also caused by coronaviruses and that causes, um, GI disease or vomiting and, and diarrhea in those animals. So there's many, many, many different ones. Um, in people so far, we've detected about six different coronaviruses. Um, work we've done in bats shows that each different bat species also has about five or so different coronaviruses. So there's many, many out there, and only a handful of them are severe pathogens. Most of them cause things like the common cold. Well, back to the humans again. What are the symptoms? In people, you know, initially it's quite difficult to tell the coronavirus infection um, apart from something like influenza or other causes of cold. You could just start out with fever, maybe coughing, um, and just sort of not feeling well. But in people where it really progresses, um, it's sort of goes further down into the lung, causing um, bronchitis and pneumonia. And those are the people that are getting severely ill and unfortunately sometimes dying from the virus. So then what is the treatment? I mean, is there a treatment? Yeah, I mean, that's hard, right? Many viral infections, it's not easy to treat. There's not um, specific medications that um, can, you know, um, cure them. 
So for people in hospitals, and again, probably good to talk to some clinicians about that, for people in hospitals, what I can tell is it's really supportive care, you know, fluid, nutrition, making sure that the people um, are, have um, help if they're having trouble breathing while they're, you know, having um, severe infections. For most people, they mostly um, feel sick, tired, maybe a little bit weak. Um, and for those, really, it would be best for them to stay home, um, heal up, rest, so that they, when they are able to go back out again, they're not shedding um, the virus and, and able to infect anybody else. So how? what's the best way we can prevent the spread? I mean, I think, you know, some of it is common um, sense things, like if you don't feel good, stay home. Um, if you are out in public places and you don't feel good, you know, wear a mask, um, wash your hands a lot. You know, definitely recommending not flying, of course, to China unless you really, really need to. There's a lot of events that are happening over the Chinese New Year, um, and if you're not feeling well, you know, stay away from those. So it's sort of that same common sense protection that you might do this time of year to protect yourself from seasonal flu or other sorts of colds. Well, Dr. Colstein, thank you so much for bringing forth all that information to us today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's great because I think it clarifies. I mean, there's so many news stories. Everyone kind of sits on the TV. A great deal. Once again, thank you so much for, for visiting with us a little bit. And maybe the next time you come, it'll be a happier topic. Thank you so much for having me. And, um, and I think it's just important to remember this is early days. And as you mm-hmm. said, we're learning a lot and things are changing every day. So good to keep an open mind and see what we learn. That was Dr. Tracy Goldstein from UC Davis. She is a professor in the Department of Pathology, Immunology, and Microbiology, as well as the Associate Director of the One Health Institute. To learn more about the coronavirus, visit cdc.gov slash coronavirus. Next up, celebrity pet news and flex facts. Can't wait. You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We would love to communicate with you via social media. Use The Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. I'm pet expert Charlotte Reed, and I want to remind you how important it is to protect your pet against fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes with preventative tablets and topicals. By giving your dogs and cats preventative meds throughout the year, you are protecting your pet from Lyme disease, heartworm, flea allergies, worms, and more, causing unwanted and costly vet bills. Most importantly, these parasites can infiltrate your home, causing you and your family's health to be compromised. Remember, healthy pets healthy you. When your doctor recommended omega fatty acids as a daily supplement, he told you that they promoted better heart, brain, skin, joint, and immune system health. Well, doesn't it make sense for your pet to have the same health benefits? EpiPet Whole Fish Treat, an all-natural smoked fish supplement, is 100% bioavailable, bringing your pets the nutrients they need to keep them healthy and happy. We first heard about EpiPet at our local rescue shelter where our family adopted Lucy. 10-year-old yellow lab. She was in tough shape, but we noticed within just a few days how soft and thick her coat was getting. She has more energy now, loves to chase her favorite tennis ball, and most importantly, how happy and healthy Lucy is now. We could not be happier. Thanks, Thanks, Epipet. 
To order better pet health for your dog or cat, just visit epi-pet.com. That's epi-pet.com. show is hosted by the dynamic pet duo. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. So let's kick off this segment with celebrity pet news. Let me just say, oh, Khaleesi, Amelia Clark, the Game of Thrones star, revealed on Instagram that she has a new main squeeze. Wow. Her new man is a dog named Ted. Mm. She refers to him as Super Ted because he just can't stop physically. She also said goodbye to slippers and carpets, but hello to poop. So, Dr. Fleck, I think you and I can both relate to Ted because he's like a whirling dervish. He's always in motion. And who does that remind you of? Which one of our dogs? I don't know. Wally. Wally's always in motion. He just can't stop. Of course, when he sleeps. I guess. Okay. And now what everyone's been waiting for. Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, da. Welcome to Just the Facts. Just the Facts. Fact or fiction? Just the Facts, ma'am. You want answers. I want the truth. It's going to take long. You got the time. So, Dr. Fleck, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about the signs of a healthy dog. In addition to regular checkups with the family veterinarian, of course, including routine wellness procedures, such as an annual blood panel, fecal testing, and urine analysis, the signs that I'm going to discuss today should be noticeable to pet owners. That's great. Something they could see very easily. Okay, so what's sign one, Dr. Fleck? Not only can they see it very easily, we want them to be aware to start watching for these signs. So, you ask about the first sign. Mm Mm-hmm. Fresh breath, just like we should have a fresh breath. So a fresh breath would indicate a healthy mouth, and it's the gateway to a healthy pet, obviously. So relatively speaking, clean-smelling breath and clean teeth are absent of tartar, buildup of signs of a good health. So if your dog has gingivitis or periodontal disease, it can ultimately affect the vital organs and lead to serious health issues. Periodontitis is a disease of the supporting structures of the teeth, like bones, ligaments, the gums, etc. It's caused by the buildup of food plaque and tartar in the spaces between the gums and lower part of the tooth. A rotten smell coming from your dog's mouth could mean live bacteria releasing those oral toxins from itself, and that's what makes the smell. So we should also watch for other things like tooth decay, and maybe even a worse situation like oral melanomas. The doctor can see this. Routine dental care can result in improved oral health and longevity of a pet by spotting these issues regularly. And I quickly want to point out, the doctors recommend these oral cleanings not because they want to make a big buck. It's because of the better assistance for the health of their pet. Okay, let's talk about sign two quickly. What's sign two? Has a shiny, clean coat. We want those shiny, just like us with our skin. We're, we're healthy. Healthy pets will typically have a shiny, clean coat due to the natural oils and routine shedding. So shedding is, is normal. 
If your dog is often licking, chewing, or scratching, it could be a sign of some skin irritation, skin allergies, maybe a bug bite, or the presence of fleas. It also is a sign your dog is uncomfortable. And guess what? You're probably uncomfortable at night because the dog's itching and keeping you up at night. So schedule a veterinary checkup to address the problem. Okay, moving on. Sign three. What's sign three? It's about a consistent lean weight. You know, our dogs and all of our pets are a little overweight, kind of like us at times. Pet obesity is the top health concern for veterinarians. Excessive weight causes the same problems in dogs as it does in humans, such as diabetes, heart and lung disease, bone and joint disease, skin conditions, and even some different kinds of cancers. So if you notice your dog has dropped a noticeable amount of weight, a checkup is recommended as this could also be a sign of health issues. Mm -hmm. So your dog should have consistent lean weight that doesn't change that much. You can observe that. You should be able to see your dog's waist taper in towards the hips without the rib cage showing. Mm -hmm. A lean dog. That's great. Pets need portion controls as well as it comes to their meals and their treats. Maybe even have a measured cup to help you measure what they really need. Discuss your pet's ideal meal plan with your veterinarian and help maintain a healthy pet. Okay, we've got a few more. Sign four. Four has to do with regular bladder and bowel movements. You know, seniors and geriatric people often monitor their health by the movement of their stools and their urine. Same way with pets. Healthy bowel movements will be absent of blood, mucus, worms, eggs, chalky white discoloration, black tire appearances, and greasy coating or diarrhea. That's where I get them all visiting me. If you notice a change, it could be due to a change of diet, stress, allergies, parasites, bacterial infection, viral infection, ingestion of toxic substances, pancreatitis, cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, colitis, or an obstruction. That's it's, a long list. It's a long list that the doctor has to look at now, when you about, come in. What about pee? The color of your dog's pee is important, too. If your pet's pee is the color of transparent yellow, like a straw yellow, it's a, it's a good sign. But if it's dark or bright yellow, could be a sign of dehydration. If it's orange, it could be typical with jaundice or gallbladder problems, pancreatic problems, severe dehydration, liver disease, or damaged blood cells. If your dog's urine is red, pink, or cloudy, it may be a sign of the urinary tract infection, like a cystitis, bladder infection, trauma, or even cancer. If your dog is peeing inside the house or off a customary pee pad, it could also be a sign of distress due to healthy issues. Okay. Again, a checkup. That's what you should do. Yeah. Now, what about sign five? Sign five has to do with your interest in its engagement. In other words, behavioral changes. Watch them. A healthy dog is eager to spend time with the family, greeting you at the door, coming to you for playtime, all these things you know, watching and observing with interest. If your dog suddenly starts spending time alone, is disengaged or sleeping more, it could be a sign of a health issue. Changes in behavior are one of the number one reason pet owners discover something is off with their companions. So pay attention to any change and schedule an appointment with your veterinarian if you notice that. Okay, we have about 30 seconds for number six. Okay, odor-free ears. Another sign of good health is dogs are clean ears. No waxy buildup, no discharge, and no pungent or musky smell. It's normal for dogs' ears to get a little dirty and the wax is routine to be expressed, so routine cleaning is recommended. 
especially for those dogs that have the floppy ears. Ignoring dirty ears can lead to a pet's ear infection. That's one of the top reasons for pet visits. Clean ears also to help maintain normal body temperatures. Think about that, normal body temperatures, by radiating heat out. One telltale sign your dog has an ear infection, smelly ears, sometimes like the smell of yeast. So what you should do then, if you notice that smell, schedule a checkup with your veterinarian if you suspect your dog is suffering maybe from an ear infection. So other common symptoms besides the smell and waxy buildup are side-to-side shaking of the head and pawing at the ear. And that's all the Flex Facts for today. Great. Well, more of the pet buzz very soon. Bet you can't wait for my I Like You of the Week. So I'm a cat, and I just moved in with this new human, and she's got this little toy she's always playing with all day long. Tap, 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 bloop, bloop. She can't put it down. There it is. Oh, and get this. She even talks to it. Last week, she asked it for Chinese, and guess what? Egg rolls showed up like magic. Humans have cool toys. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Does your pet have dry, flaky, and itchy skin? Do you find yourself visiting the veterinarian repeatedly because Fido or Fluffy has skin allergies or ear infections? EpiPet to the rescue. Developed by a veterinarian, EpiPet is a revolutionary, high-performance skin and ear care product line made with the finest natural ingredients. EpiPet, for you and your pet, means better pet health. For more information, visit epi-pet.com. Welcome back. You're listening to the Pet Buzz, the best in pet talk radio. I'm pet trendologist Charlotte Reed. And now for my I Likey of the Week. That's the way it has to be because that's the way I like it. It's genius. I like it. I love it. I like it. It's to die for. I like it. Well, it's a new year. So Swatch's new Chinese New Year special cheese celebrates the year of the rat, the clever creature's inevitable number one position. The rat is the first in the Zodiac's 12-year cycle, making it a spirited animal bursting with wit, delicacy, and vitality. In the year of the rat. In Chinese mythology about the origin of the world, the universe was dark and shapeless until the rock star rat took an energetic and tasty bite and separated the heaven and the earth. And this is why I love the new Swatch Watch Year of the Rat. Check it out either online at swatch.com or a store nearest you. Now let's bring on our next guest. Well, you all know that Phil, with his Groundhog Club of characters, may be predicting the weather tomorrow out in old Puxitani, Pennsylvania. But I'm interested in learning more about groundhogs. So joining us to talk about groundhogs is Daniel Bloomstein. 
an ethologist and conservation biologist. He is a professor at the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. He has authored and co-authored over 300 articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Most importantly, he is a groundhog expert. Welcome to the Pet Buzz, Professor Bloomstein. Thanks for having me. So tomorrow's Groundhog's Day. So how are you spending it? Normally, I'm in Los Angeles, where we don't really need a midwinter festival, but there we have a big party. This year, I'm teaching a field in marine biology course in Morea in French Polynesia, and we have a big party as well. So we go out and get some beer and sit on the dock and talk about the weather as one would at a Groundhog Day party. Cool. I hope you have some food, too. <laughs> uh, well, it'll be after dinner. Okay. So let's take a step back. What's a groundhog? So. Groundhogs are one of 15 species of marmots. Marmots are large ground squirrels. I call them charismatic mesofauna. They're about the size of a cat, and they live around the northern hemisphere. All of them are obligate hibernators, which means they spend their summers getting obese, and then they sort of sleep for five, six, seven months a year. Wow. They depress the metabolic rate and don't eat anything, and then they come out, and if they survive, they, they do it again. So let's talk about the folklore, because I know tomorrow Phil will be making a big prediction, no matter how old he is, but with all the Puxitani guys. So what's that folklore around Groundhog's Day? How did it come to be? The folklore goes back to uh, pagan holidays in Northern Europe, where if you're living in Northern Europe and pagan times, you probably needed a midwinter festival. People were cluing in on any possible piece of information that might say that spring is coming sooner or how much longer, how much more winter do we have? And they were looking at another hibernating species called the hedgehog. So when this later became a Catholic holiday, Candlemas Day, and then later when the Pennsylvania Deutsch, the Germans came to the Pennsylvania area, they brought this tradition, this midwinter festival idea over, and we're looking for an animal to glob it onto. And they said, hey, marmots hibernate, and maybe we can associate uh, the weather with marmots. How do these animals live? I mean, you told me they sleep for a few months out of the year and they fatten up. So, like, where do they live? And So marmots live around the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Many of them live in alpine settings. Groundhogs don't really live in, in alpine settings as much as these other species. Rather, they sort of, if you imagine an arc across North America, starting in the southeast and sort of going across the New England states and, and southern Canada and even as far as uh, southern uh, Alaska. Um, so there's sort of a swath of groundhogs that live in more woodland, uh, open meadow areas. They, okay. uh, they, they often live near farms and, and homes as well. Okay. So, and they live in burrows. They are burrow dwelling animals. Yes. They, they spend their nights in burrows, they hibernate in burrows, and they retreat to them when they get scared by predators. They can be quite big and they excavate quite a bunch of soil to make these. Yeah, because I read while I was preparing for this interview that they can like move about 700 pounds of dirt to build these burrows. I thought that was pretty cool. I, w- I would believe that. Soil's really heavy and, uh, you know, the burrows can be quite big. But they uh, they also last generations. So a good burrow is something you might pass on to your daughters. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Professor Daniel Blumstein a conservation biologist at UCLA who is talking to us about groundhogs because tomorrow is Groundhog's Day. So I'm just curious, how long do these animals live? So, you know, longevity is a hard one. Most animals probably die their first year. Um, There's high mortality uh, among pups, and many animals don't make it through their first hibernation. But if animals make it through their first hibernation, in captivity at least, 
groundhogs can live up to 14 years, but most of them probably live much shorter lives. Yeah. I mean, I, how old is Phil? He's like, what for? I mean, he's never ever, I guess they, he, they just keep getting a new one and just saying it's the same old Phil, but I mean, can they live to be like 30 or 40 years of age if they're held in captivity? No, the, the longest groundhog in captivity has been 14 years, according to this database of how long animals live. Um, in the wild, they probably live much shorter lives. Okay. I remember getting a call from some other competing um, groundhog group that said, oh, my God, we lost our, our, our groundhog, and it was an albino. Do you have, you know, have any <laughs> albino groundhogs because uh, we have to come up with one for Groundhog Day? They really called you and said, can you swap it out? It's kind of like <laughs> New York real estate. It's like if you're dog, can you get me a Cavalier of that exact size? You know, it's got to be friendly and nice. Uh, yeah, so I've got to, like, tool the co-op board. <laughs> okay so they probably die from what i understand like predators get them so what predators are out there hunting groundhogs coyotes you know bears might get them certainly dogs groundhogs as you know if you live in an area with groundhogs don't fare well around cars so you know cars take their toll on groundhogs um, raptors hawks and eagles will get them um, they feed a lot of animals Wow. So that's my next question. Okay. So they feed a lot of animals, but that can't be their only benefit for the ecosystem. What's their particular benefit to the ecosystem? Well, I mean, I think they, in addition to feeding lots of animals, they, they turn up the soil and aerate soils like other burrowing animals. Okay. Um, they, not groundhogs specifically, but some other species of marmots may provide warning signals that tell others about threats. So, all marmots produce things called alarm calls when they get scared, when they see predators. And groundhogs are kind of quiet. They produce alarm calls, but rarely. But the other species call much more, and their alarm calls warn other species. So they, they provide a public service by telling other species when predators are around. Wow. The civil servant of uh, marmots, the groundhog. Yep. I like yep. that. That's a kind of cool way of thinking about it. Okay. Uh, I don't meet a lot of public servant, natural public servant animals in my work. But um, <laughs> so is it true that farmers are not a big fan of the groundhog? If you're growing things, you're, you're going to take, uh, suffer some losses if there are lots of groundhogs around. If you're growing apples, they're going to come to eat your apples. Um, if you're uh, plowing fields, their burrows might be uh, extend into some of the some of the pastures. I think, you know, farmers ultimately can deal with groundhogs, uh, maybe Apple farmers, not as much, but people having gardens in their backyard uh, often complain about groundhogs eating their, their vegetables. Um, I view it as a form of uh, habitat enrichment, and these people should celebrate the fact <laughs> that they get uh, well, I so guess, to have a groundhog in their backyard. I guess if you're a farmer and your tractor falls in a hole, because that's possible from what I read, then you're not a big fan. Yeah, Groundhogs aren't wombats. Wombats are a nuisance. Um, but groundhogs, you know, their burrows aren't that big. But yes, I mean, people probably have broken axles with their, with their truck, with their tractors before. Okay. I got you. Well, that was Professor Daniel Bloomstein, a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at UCLA, talking about groundhogs. To learn more about him and his laboratory, visit 
bloomsteinlab.eeb.ucla.edu. Of course, I'm going to put this information up on our social media pages. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the champions of the big game. Let's take you out to commercial break with how much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? He would as much as he could and chuck as much wood as a woodchuck would if a woodchuck could chuck wood. Hey there. I'm Lonnie from Lonnie's Lumber. If you need lumber wood, Lonnie's is better than good. We got oak, cherry, walnut, and more. And we also have the best selection of plywood in the state. Hey! (laughs) Dang, woodchucks, stop chucking that wood! You are listening to The Pet Buzz with pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We love to communicate with you via social media. Use the Pet Buzz social media channels on Twitter and Facebook to make a comment or ask a question. Post a picture of your pet on Instagram and tell us about his or her unique personality. You can also write to us at team at thepetbuzz.com. For more information about our show, our guests, and our buzzworthy freebies, visit us at thepetbuzz.com. They call me Prince like I'm royalty or something. But the places I've lived ain't no palaces. So I don't need grilled salmon or a new scratching post. Just give me a cardboard box and a can of tuna and we're good. You can even change my name. I'm cool being the kitty formerly known as Prince. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. I'm petronologist Charlotte Reed. I'm veterinarian Dr. Michael Fleck. We're urban. Suburban. And and country. Well, I want to talk about global pet news. And now, pet buzz news from around the globe. So don't miss the big game tomorrow. I'm talking about the puppy bowl. The puppy bowl. That actually is 15 premieres tomorrow, Sunday, February 3rd at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Animal Planet with more than 90 puppies from 51 shelters taking the field in hopes of winning the title for Team Rough or Team Fluff. This year, Animal Planet is bringing back the dog bowl this year, but giving older canines a chance to find homes and promote adoption. More than 60 adult dogs from 15 states will be competing this year on Saturday, February 22nd at 8 p.m. Among these athletic puppies and dogs are dozens of amazing stories, including those of several special needs canines who overcame the odds to play in the big game. Some dogs are blind, others are deaf, and some have even loss of mobility. We wish all the champions the best of luck. Most importantly, we wish them all forever and happy homes. Well, I was in Denver last week and I thought this was a really important story and it has to do with their breed specific legislation. For more than 30 years, Denver has had a ban on pit bulls within the city. That could soon change. It seems that city councilman Chris Herndon is seeking to modernize Denver's animal ordinance. Herndon wants to repeal the city's ban on pit bulls, but put some special requirements in place. So joining us today is veterinarian Dr. April Steele. You remember her. She's president of the Dumb Friends League in Denver. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Steele. So appreciate having you here. It's really great to be on your show again. Oh, thank you. So 
Tell us, Dr. Schill, what's the current Denver legislation regarding pit bulls and kind of what prompted that legislation? So in 1989, a breed-specific legislation went into effect in Denver, which basically makes it illegal to own a pit bull in the city and county of Denver. And it went into effect in response to a couple incidents um, where people got significantly injured, and that was a reaction of the city council at the time. And over the years, it's been uh, enforced in different ways. Um, more recently, although the, the current law technically says that any pit bull that comes to a shelter um, can't be placed, um, we actually are able to place pit bulls that come to the Dumb Friends League into our shelter, but we can't place them to any anyone that has a residence in somewhere that has free specific legislation. Dr. Steele, what kind of factors could have contributed to the possible lifting of the breed ban? So I think it's the level of value people in our community place on animals and how many people have really seen pit bulls or blocky headed whatevers or whatever you want to call them because there's not really a single breed that's a pit bull. Um, but so many people have them as part of their family and they know they can be good citizens in the community and they can be great pets. And just knowing that if you live in Denver, you either have to move or you this animal gets confiscated is something that is no longer acceptable to our community. Well, you know, I, one of the things that I find really interesting is the following. I mean, I've seen Yorkies and Maltese by children. It seems that they never make it into the paper. It's only the pit bulls that make it into the paper. They've mauled children. I mean, there are also other dogs that inherently bite. Um, mm-hmm. So it's always, I mean, I always find it like really not fair. And the other thing is, I mean, we're just at a point now, it's been a few years since Michael, uh, Michael Vick's victory dogs have are starting to die out now, but many of them were saved and placed in happy homes and have done so yeah, well know, with love and rehabilitation. What we really need to focus on is um, dangerous dogs and safe dogs, not a breed of dog. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the unintended consequences of having free specific legislation is that people then think, oh, pit bulls are the dangerous dog. I can walk up to this Cocker Spaniel. It'll be fine. And that's not always fine. Every dog can bite. And there are resources to help socialize dogs, to help with behavior in dogs, to help with, you know, veterinary, you know, if there's pain, there's veterinary care to help them. But when you have a ban on a breed, many times those owners are really hesitant to take that dog for that resource because they don't want their dog to be confiscated. So if they're having, if they, and they're, these dogs are in our community. In the last two years, the Dumfries League has received over 170 pit bulls from Denver residents and over 600 from just very um, adjoining communities. So we know they're here, and we know they need to be socialized, and they need these resources. So really what the ban is doing is making our community essentially more dangerous by not allowing these people to feel comfortable to get the resources they need to have safe and healthy pets. And that's really why I'm so happy you're here, because the Dumb Friends League is such a great source an invaluable source of information. I mean, even though I don't live in Denver, I've been familiar with your organization for years and you've put out so much great information on your website. It's always just a valuable place to look for great dog info, as well as I'm sure just great dog information. Well, thank you. We work hard to make it a good resource, so I'm glad you find it so. Well, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Dr. April Steele. She's president of the Dumb Friends League about proposed legislation to lift the pit bull ban in Denver. So can you talk a little bit about Councilman Chris 
Herndon's proposed legislation. Let's just, let's review it. What is he, what do you want to talk about? It's not a complete repeal of the ban, and a lot of, that's mainly because there are many on the city council that are still concerned uh, about how safe temples are and, and, and have that type of thinking. So what this um, legislation does is it allows Denver residents to own temples up to two, and they have to have a special three specific license. And after three years of having that license, if there's no incidents, then it's up to the Denver Animal Protection to determine whether there's continued licensing or not. So it, it does open up ownership of pit bulls in Denver, which is pretty exciting. I think that is exciting. The other thing that I think is, don't you also have to have um, bite insurance? Was that part of the proposed legislation? That's not. They couldn't go to the insurance. Um, it got too complicated. So okay. That is not part of the current so how are other groups in the community um, feeling about this? This is such an interesting issue because people feel very, very passionate. And people that feel like this is a social justice issue or feel that people that are unfairly being characterized are very vocal and are out in droves supporting this change. There are people that are speaking from a place of having had a personal negative experience with a pit bull. Um, or just having a generalized fear of pit bulls. And they are coming out, as you would imagine, and, and, and speaking from a place of true fear. I mean, this is truly how they feel, and they don't want pit bulls to be free in the community. What's really interesting is in the hearings that we um, had last week, the main concern was off-leash dogs at dog parks, and they didn't want a pit bull running up to them and their dog at a dog park off-leash. So it seems... Like the issue is more about dogs not being on leashes than it is about pit bulls. But there are there are some people that are very fearful of it. There were two polls done on next door. The mayor did one, and seventy seventy percent of people were in favor of lifting the ban and doing this reform. And then there were actually two smaller polls done by two council members, and their results were exactly fifty fifty, right down the middle as far as people in support of the reform versus people that want the ban to stay in place. Wow. Well, you know, this is a great topic. I'm actually glad that I saw it when I was in Denver last week. One of the outlets that covered it was Fox, and I happened to be in the station. So if you guys are out there listening, if you're a proponent of breed-specific legislation or you're against it, we want to hear from you. We love, love, love hearing comments from you. Thank you for the platform to talk about. Sure. And we wish you the best of luck, everyone. That was Dr. April Steele, president of the Dumb Friends League in Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, discussing the proposed lifting of the city's pit bull ban. To learn more information, visit ddfl.org. Did you hear the bell? Unbelievably, yes. I know. It's always too soon to wrap the show, but before we go, we want to give you a preview for next week's show. Well, next week we're talking about the 144th Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show. WKC Gail Miller Beischer, the Director of Communications. DraftKings Johnny Avello is going to talk about how to make the odds and determine who a winner is. And of course, there's always more, including finding the dog of your dreams. Can't wait. So special thanks to our guest today. Professor Tracy Goldstein, Professor Daniel Bloomstein, and Dr. April Steele. And of course, we must always thank our sponsors, the Animal Medical Center of Bradenton and EpiPet, making better skin, coat, and ear care products for healthier pets everywhere. And if you have any questions, write us at team at thepetbuzz.com 
We'll cover it on our next week's show. And if you've missed any portion of this show, visit our social media channels as well as your favorite streaming channels and listen to the linked podcast on Monday morning. But most importantly, remember, we're here each week to help you take better care of your pets. Peace out and pet love. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Pet Buzz. The Pet Buzz is hosted by the dynamic pet duo, pet trendologist Charlotte Reed and Dr. Michael Fleck. Tune in each week for the latest 411 on everything pet related. Visit our website at www.thepetbuzz.com. Learn more about us, the show, and our guests.